Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few fish, a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And these were four, and there were four thousand people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat and went to, with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. This is the word of the Lord. So if I, if I can make a confession to you this morning, in my Christian life as I have read the Bible, especially through the Gospels, the part of the story that I have struggled with has been these stories right here where Jesus feeds the crowd. Jesus feeding 5,000 people here in, in, in Mark in chapter 6. And then he feeds 4,000 people in this text in, in chapter 8. And understand, Jesus feeding 5,000 people is a story that's included in all four of the gospel narratives, which means it's a very important detail. And, it, and it's a miracle that clearly points to Christ's divinity. It's a demonstration of his complete power over the material world as he demonstrates um, who he is, God in the flesh. That he, he takes food and creates it out of nothing. And, and this miracle right here, as we talked about before, a few weeks ago, is a picture of the Exodus, where God miraculously sends bread from heaven to feed his people. But it's also a picture of Christ, the good shepherd, who has compassion for his sheep, and he takes care of them. And it's also, this miracle is a picture of the radical, world-changing, soul-rescuing, sacrificial kind of love that Christ has for us. Which, again, is awesome. But I still struggle with this story. And it's not like that... like, like, it's not like Jesus' other miracles. This is a standalone, unique event. Jesus feeding 5,000 people. I mean, we've heard that before, but I, I don't think that sometimes we, we think about the power here. He feeds 5,000 people, or like 15,000 total, with all the kids and, and, the, and the spouses, with just a few pieces of bread and some small fish. It is a mind-blowing miracle. But then, Matthew and Mark, they... They, they repeat this story a second time, but with a different sized crowd. And, and if I'm going to be honest, I mean, I would look at this story and I'm think to myself, okay, right? this is just like the story I had just read a few chapters ago. It's a repeat event. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever read some parts of the Bible, it's kind of repetitive. I mean, Deuteronomy, 
numbers. I mean, there's some repetition there. And so I would like quickly just read through this story in order to get to the next story because I feel like I've heard this before. Jesus is preaching somewhere and he's ministering to some people and they get hungry. And so he has them sit down and he takes a Lunchable and he feeds them all. Right? And, and then they go and they pick up all the leftovers and their basket's full, you know, demonstrating that Jesus is more than enough. Praise the Lord. Right? Next. Like, let's get on to the next story. It's my attitude. I would think to myself, you know, okay, great. Jesus is God. Perfect. Jesus is compassionate. Awesome. Jesus is more than enough to satisfy us. Good. Now let's move on. Right? That's how I've kind of viewed these stories before in the past, if I'm being honest. And, and believe me, I would read the Gospels and I would get to the part like of, of the, the Sermon on the Mount. I love that. Read the Beatitudes. Amazing. Jesus healing people and casting out demons. Awesome. And if I'm Still confessing, one of my favorite stories in the entire New Testament is Jesus making a whip and driving people out, right? Flipping over tables, you know, that's the picture of Jesus I kind of like to remember as people try to tell me that Jesus was this person who never hurt anybody's feelings or never did anything controversial. But when I look ahead and I would see the stories that were coming up next as Jesus feeding 5,000 people, and then shortly after that, Jesus is feeding 4,000 people, I'd be like, all right, right? Let me just read this story, let me read the text, and let me get on to the next story. And again, don't get me wrong. I mean, I believe that there's value in this story, but, but I would just think, why? Repeat it. I mean, what's the point here? Because it just seems like it's just retelling the same thing just to a different group of people. And it would be like, you could have just repeated, just said, he did that again for these people over here. So why? Right? Isn't one time enough? But then I began, as we all should, to slow down and take my time and, and really look at the details. That's why Bible study is, is so important. Not just Bible reading, but Bible study where you get the Bible out and a piece of paper and a pencil and you slow down and you look at the details and you ask the important questions. Which is what I did. And, and what I did is I've discovered that there, you know, these are two very similar events, but there are also some differences in many respects. I mean, there's a number of clear differences that makes it very plain that these are not the same event. They're two separate events that Jesus participated in. In the first one, he feeds 5,000 people. In the second, 4,000. The first one was in Capernaum. The second one was in the region of the Decapolis, which is... Another way of saying ten cities. In the, in the first one, he starts with five loaves of bread. The second, he starts with seven. In the first story, he ends up with twelve little baskets full of bread. In the other, he ends up with seven big hampers full of bread. In one, he offers up a single prayer for both the bread and the fish. In the other, he offers up a prayer for the bread and then a prayer for the fish. In one, Jesus, he sends his disciples away ahead of him. Right? And they get into a storm, and he goes walking on water and calms the storm. And the other, he gets in a boat with them, and they go off, and everything's fine. So these are two very different events. right? And, and, and they were both included in the text for a reason. And, and what I understand is that, as Paul says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Which means every Scripture, every single word, every paragraph... Every verse, every story is in the text for a reason. All of it is the Word of God. And what I've come to realize is that each one of these events 
Even though they're similar, it's communicating something slightly different. But more importantly, when you put these two stories together, they communicate something together that you just won't see in just one of these events. And so, and so I, I wanted to take some time this morning and kind of walk through this text in, in light of that and, and look at five essential truths for us to hold on to and understand and be shaped by. Five truths that this story, when you see them in context, um, that this, these stories make abundantly clear. And so again, turn with me back to Mark chapter 8. We'll begin in verse 1. And, and Mark begins with this phrase, in those days. Now, what you need to realize is that Mark is helping you to understand that this is a continuation of the same narrative. This is not, there's not a big timeline difference. Right? There's, there's a continuation of the storyline we've been following. Jesus, if you remember, was in conflict with a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees about what makes a person defiled or unclean before God. And Jesus makes it really clear that what makes a person unclean, it is not external. It's not your behavior. It's not your religiousness. It's not the food that you eat. It is not even the fact that you might or might not wash your hands. That is not what makes you defiled. What makes you defiled or unclean or, or at odds with God is internal. It is your heart. That's what makes a person defiled, is our corrupt heart. And, and for all their religiousness, these Pharisees, and all of their rule-keeping and their traditions and all of their external righteousness and trying to do everything they can possibly do on their own to be right with God, Jesus calls them hypocrites because they internally still have the same problem everybody else does. They have corrupt hearts. And then from there, Jesus leaves this predominantly Jewish area and he travels to a Gentile nation or a place of non-Jewish people, which by itself is considered to be unclean. And Jesus encounters a woman who is a Gentile. Again, somebody that's considered unclean or defiled. And she has a daughter with an unclean spirit. And Jesus then comes to her, talks to her, and says to her, shockingly, Woman, you have great faith. And so these Pharisees who were born in the right nation, from the right family, who have the right religious philosophy, so to speak, who have the right law are hypocrites, but God, but this woman living in an unclean land, born to an unclean family, with a daughter with an unclean spirit, Jesus considers someone to be of great faith. And again, if you missed that message, I want to encourage you to go back and listen. You can do that by going to our website, our church website, or to our SoundCloud page, and you can, you can listen to the whole thing there. But the point is... Jesus was making it clear that what makes a person right with God is not about following rules. It's not about trying harder. It's not trying about being more religious. What makes a person right with God is having a trusting, persevering, humble, submitted faith in Jesus Christ. That was the point. And then from there, Jesus then continues to minister to these unclean people. And in this unclean land, he's going to extraordinary lengths to build their faith in, in them, the faith that they would have for him, bringing a message of hope that they didn't have before to a people who were considered by the Jewish to be unredeemable. And what he was doing, he's demonstrating the gospel ultimately is for, for everyone. Everyone is welcome to come to Christ, which is an important development as we're going to see a little bit later. Because Jesus is still now in the Decapolis. 
which is again a Gentile area, and then it says, in those days, this continuation of the story, in those days, when again a great crowd gathered, which again should be a very familiar picture to us. If we're remembering what happens in the book of Mark, everywhere Jesus goes, what happens? A crowd begins to form. He does a miracle, and all of a sudden, everybody and their brother shows up. You know, sometimes they, 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 they're so big, they almost, you know, almost crush him. Sometimes it's inside of a house, and, and they get so full in the house that people can't even get to him to where they're ripping the house, the roof off people, people's houses. Right? This, is a, this is the same scene, just a different kind of crowd. The difference between this crowd and all the other crowds is, is this is a Gentile crowd. This is a group of people who are non-Jews, who are crowding around him. And, and, and the reason why is because they've seen what Christ can do, and now they're flocking to him. In fact, Matthew, in his narrative of this gospel, or this uh, story, he kind of like gives us a little bit more detail. He tells us that great crowds came to him, bringing with him this, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Jesus was giving the Gentiles the full blessing that he was giving the Jews. He was healing them. He was giving them hope. And they were responding. How? Glorifying God. And they weren't glorifying their false gods. They were glorifying the God of Israel. This is, this is a real transformation that's happening. And, and then it says, and, and they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Now, this right here is one of those verses I've read over many times, but this actually communicates a lot. First of all, I want you to notice Jesus, he's been ministering to this crowd for three days. Now, we don't know if it's like three days and three nights. It doesn't really say that. Right? But we do know by Jesus' work ethic that these are long days. Like, Jesus works... You know, and he just doesn't stop working. And so there's a lot of people here, at least 4,000 in fact, which by the way is nearly double the, the population of our community. You take Boron and North Edwards, put it together, and then double that, we're pretty close to this number right here. Secondly, it says, it says something really important about these people. They have flocked to Jesus, and they're not leaving him. Not even to go eat. Like, again, if you don't slow down and notice this, this is, this is an important detail. Which means they really understand that there's something very special about Christ. They recognize that He is their hope and they want to be near Him. And understand, these are, what, the unclean people in an unclean land from a pagan culture. But they recognize, they, they see that Jesus is a hope, is the hope. They found hope in Christ because He is shining the light of His good works through His actions toward these people and they're flocking to Him and they're staying with Him. Which when you look at that, you sh it should immediately cause us to ask the question, why aren't people flocking and staying with the church? And the answer is simply this. The church in our culture is either failing to shine the light of Christ or it's failing to share the message of hope found in the gospel. 
That's the problem. See, the church must be like Christ in both of these areas. We must shine the light of Christ in how we interact and treat the world around us. The love of Christ should be pouring out of us. It should be evidence in our lives and how we treat people. But we also must proclaim the truth unapologetically about the gospel. You see, it's the love of Christ that draws them in. It is the truth of Christ that keeps them. It's the love of Christ that opens their heart. It's the truth of Christ that changes their heart. In fact, notice what what, what Jesus says. He says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. You see, the first thing that this particular text teaches us is not a new lesson to us. It's something we've talked about over and over again, but it is that Christ is compassionate. Now, I know that we've said this before more than once, and I know this probably been one of your bullet points of your notes before, and I know that we I'm probably sound like a broken record when I say something like this, but this bears repeating. This bears remembering. This bears us constantly reminding ourselves over and over and over again, Jesus is compassionate. Jesus, the Son of the living God, is compassionate. And if we're going to follow Him, as He says, and if we're going to become like Him, as we're committed to be, then we need to grow and become compassion to the people around us. And I know that this is a struggle for most of us. Right? Because most of us feel like there are people around me that really just don't deserve my compassion. But again, let's remember who Jesus is being compassionate to here in this text. He's being compassionate to those who are the outsiders. He's being compassionate to those who are seen as unclean and unworthy. He is being compassionate to those who are being rejected by the religious leaders. I mean, the religious won't even come talk to these people. When they have contact with these people, they go and wash their hands. These are, these are the people that, that, that the religious avoid. This is a picture of the full scope of the love of Christ. If Jesus is compassionate to the outcast and the marginalized and the despised, so should we be. So should we be. In fact, as we we asked last week, what right do you have to withhold compassion from anyone? And the answer is none whatsoever. Jesus was compassionate to these people. He was concerned about their well-being. And he said, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from, from far away. You see, these people were so consumed with being with Christ and being near him that they'd eaten in like three days. And this is serious because you have to realize this is a different time and a place than where we live. I mean, we get hungry. I mean, we can go down and pay like nine bucks for like some granola bars here at the gas station. I mean, you know, or we can go down and get a hamburger. I mean, there's food plenty around us, but they live in an area where food was scarce. And let's just be honest. They lived at a time like when people didn't have quite the energy reserves that some of us do. You know what I'm saying? And so being without food for three solid days was a serious issue. 
And these people walking home, I mean, they would actually, they're in danger of burning up all their energy and passing out. That's really, you know, how hungry they would be. So Jesus' disciples answered him and said, How can one feed these people with, with bread here in this desolate place? Now, some will look at this question that they're asking and say, Well, this is evidence right here that this is actually the same event that, that, they, that Mark was talking about before. But this isn't two different events. This is just a retelling of the same event. In fact, a lot of scholars look at it that way and say that, that Mark is just making things up to make a point. Because how can these guys ask this question? I mean, if he saw, if they saw him feed 5,000 people before, how would they even think to ask the question, how can one feed these people? Because did they forget about what, what Jesus did? Well, the answer simply is this. Contrary to popular opinion, Jesus was not a walking miracle machine. And I say that because Jesus did a lot of miracles, but there were times that Jesus did not do miracles. He didn't do any miracle that didn't suit his purpose. Because if you remember, what was the whole purpose of Jesus' miracles? To build faith in people and to give validity to the message of the gospel. That was the point. He didn't just heal people to heal people. Obviously he did it because he was compassionate, but his his goal always was to was to build faith in people and to bring and to bring validity to the message of the gospel. And so there were times that he didn't do miracles. In fact, we saw that early on in Mark chapter one. Jesus spends a whole night healing people, right? Then he goes and gets alone so he can spend some time alone with, with God. And then people are looking for him. Why? Because there are people who need or want to be healed. They want to see more miracles. They want to experience more miracles. And what does Jesus do? He says, no, we're going somewhere else. He didn't perform those miracles. right? Or how about when Jesus went to his hometown? They were like irritated with him and, and didn't believe in him. And so he only healed a couple of people and then he left. I mean, Jesus did feed you know, 5,000 people at one time. But they weren't expecting him to just continually be doing that. They weren't, conti- they weren't expecting that Jesus, hey Jesus, I'm hungry now, can you make some food? That was not part of the deal. right? And yes, Jesus, he calmed the storm twice. But every time the, the clouds blew in, he didn't wipe them away. And every time the wind blew, he didn't make it stop. And every time the rain fell, he didn't like make that quit. Or how about this? Jesus still gets into a boat, even though he could walk on water. He didn't walk on water everywhere he went. He didn't need to actually be in a boat. He could have just did what he did. But no, he still, there was no point. He doesn't do his miracles just out of convenience. He does his miracles for the right context. Not to mention, these disciples were not the most mature people in their faith. They're still growing. They still didn't have a grip on who Christ was all the way. And even mature Christians today, even mature Christians today who have seen God do incredible things in their lives, who have, who have prayed with their hearts out and watched God answer prayer after prayer after prayer, who have seen God come through time and time again, some of the most mature Christians can still fall into doubt wondering if God's going to even help. There are people that are still Christians who are very mature that are surprised, still, to see God come through. And so this isn't a reasonable, I mean, so this isn't a reasonable objection. All the evidence points to the fact that this is a separate event from the first one. 
And so they ask, how can we feed these people in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves of bread do you have? And they said, seven. And so he directs them to sit down, by the way, on the ground and not in the grass like the other one, and not in groups of fifties and hundreds like the other one. He just has them sit down. And he took the seven loaves and having given things, broke them and gave them to the, to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And then they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that, that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. Again, this being in a Christian culture, reading these scriptures over and over again, it's very easy to lose sight of this. This is an incredible feat. This is an incredible display of supernatural power. There are at least 4,000 people here who have not eaten in three days, and Jesus takes seven loaves of bread and a few small sardines, and he feeds them all. All of these people, all 4,000 of them. Right? Not only ate, but they were completely full. So it wasn't like they had a couple little morsels and that satisfied their hunger for a few minutes. They were completely full. They were satisfied, is what the Greek says. Right? And if that were not enough, then there were seven big baskets full left over. And again, this isn't the first time he's done this. This is the second time he's performed this miracle. We're, we're <clears throat> He's fed these multitudes. And additionally, in addition to this, he's demonstrated his authority over creation in another way where he calms a storm of hurricane proportions twice and then walks on water. And then not only that, he heals hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people of all manners of afflictions. Right? Busted limbs. People that can't talk right. People who are deaf. People who are blind. People who have fevers. People who have demons. Jesus, he's even, he's even raised a little girl from the dead. And, and, and even more than that, the man that was lowered down next to Jesus when they tore the roof off Peter's house, what did, what did Jesus say to this man? He said, son, your sins are forgiven. And the people in the room rightly asked the question, who but God can forgive sins? You see this miracle like all the other ones certainly displays Christ's compassion for the people, but it demonstrates clearly that Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. And many of you are like, I know, because you keep saying that. Week after week, you keep saying that. Week after week, you keep telling us, write it down, Jesus is God in the flesh. I mean, I know, right? I know, Pastor Sherman, if there's some things that you're going to say, is you're loved and you're prayed for, and Jesus is God. We get it. Well, I know that it sounds like a broken record, but there's something that we must keep... This is something that we have to be focused on. This is something that we have to keep our eyes on because for some reason, it's in all of us at some point in our walk to forget this. Jesus is not simply some powerful man of God. Jesus is not just some, some characteristic rabbi. I mean, I mean charismatic rabbi. Jesus is not just some inspired prophet. He's not just the greatest man in all of human history. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is Yahweh. He is the great I Am. It is He who created all things. It is He who sustains all things. It is He who gave us the scriptures. In fact, there are people 
many who call themselves Christians, they really kind of get twisted off on this, and they'll say things like, well, you know, I really just focus on the red letters of the Bible. The red letter is the most important, because that's what Jesus said. Those are Jesus' words, so those are the ones I pay attention to the most. So, I don't really care so much about what Paul says, because Paul ain't Jesus. I don't care so much what Peter said, because Peter ain't Jesus. Jesus is not just some man in his story who had said some words only at this point in time. Jesus is the author himself, which means it is all his words. And what this reminds us of is, is our greatest problem is, is so great that it required God himself to come and bring comfort to us. It reminds us that God himself had to come and give us hope that our problem is so great that it required God himself coming to bring healing to our lives. It required God himself coming to give us what we need. This miracle is a reminder that Jesus is God and that he, and he alone is the source of all that we need. He's the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe. And it's he alone that can satisfy our greatest need. Yes, Jesus is compassionate but he is also the holy and righteous living God. And there's still more to this text. In fact, the bread here is particularly symbolic in this text. And actually in both of these narratives about Jesus feeding a crowd. First of all, what this, this, the bread is how it connects the story to the Exodus. As we mentioned before, Jesus here once again is in a desolate place surrounded by a group of hungry people who, are super, who he supernaturally feeds with no real resources around him. Kent Hughes in his commentary notes that Jesus, as the second Moses, right, consciously parallels himself with their ancient father. He says it was through Moses that God announced that he was going to rain down bread from heaven, or manna is what it was called. You see, God provided for his people supernaturally bread from heaven. This bread just came out of nowhere. It just appeared in the morning like, like frost on the ground. And they would go and they would collect it and they would eat it. <laughs> and it was enough for all of their needs. It was a supernatural provision from the hand of God himself. And so here Jesus is once again finds himself in a desolate place with no real resources around him and there's not enough food for this crowd anywhere nearby but in full view of all of these thousands of witnesses he supernaturally creates by his own hand for these people to eat. He takes seven loaves of bread and when I say seven loaves of bread I'm not talking about big loaves of French bread we're talking about seven pieces of flat bread more like tortillas seven pieces of flat bread and he feeds 4,000 people with it this is a picture of God providing for his people in the wilderness just like the story of the Old Testament and if that were not enough then consider this where did Jesus come from? Now you would say, well, he came from Capernaum. Well, yes, but before that. Well, he came from Nazareth. Well, yes, but before that. Where was he born? He was born in the city of Bethlehem. Do you know what the, what the name Bethlehem actually means in Hebrew? Beth means house. So when you see Bethel, so Beth means house. Lehem means bread. 
Bethlehem, the town that Jesus was born in, literally means house of bread. Jesus was born in the city of bread. Now, with that in mind, I want you to think about, on the final evening of Jesus' life, he's sitting with his apostles, and he's just explained to them, he's going somewhere that they can't go. They're trying to figure this out, right? He's washed their feet. They're, they're trying to understand what's happening. And then Jesus, what does he do? He takes out bread, and he breaks it, and he gives it to them, and says, this is my body for you. And with that in mind, remember what Jesus said to Satan. When Satan tried to tempt Jesus to supernaturally take a stone and turn it into bread so he could satisfy his own hunger, what did he say? Matthew 4, four, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And who is it that is the living word of God? John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, Jesus is not just feeding these people simply to satisfy their physical hunger. He was communicating something important about Himself. He's not only compassionate, He's not only God in the flesh, but He's demonstrating here and also in Capernaum that He is the bread of life. This miracle isn't just a demonstration of what he can do. It's a demonstration of who he is. He is the bread of life. He is the bread that comes down from heaven. In fact, after the first feeding in Capernaum, John records Jesus saying exactly that to a crowd of people. He says, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus was not only feeding their bodies, he's feeding their souls. The physical bread that he was giving them certainly was feeding their bodies for sure, but he was communicating that he will also be the one that feeds their souls. Jesus is the bread of life. And as God not only does he provide for their physical life, but he also provides for their spiritual life. And the thing that which you have to realize is in, only with him and in him can we have that spiritual life. Only in Christ do we have real life. Because apart from him, we do not have it. You understand that, right? No matter what anybody else has to say around the world, without him, apart from him, there is no life. That's why Jesus said... Very explicitly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is pointing to the ultimate reality of who he is. Yes, he's compassionate. Yes, he is God in the flesh. But he is the only source of life. This miracle here is the crescendo of all the details of his life and ministry to this point. This is the big turning point in the story. He is the bread of life. And anyone who eats of him or repents and believes in him will have life eternal, is the promise. But I want you to know something really, really important here. Again, this is something that's easy to miss unless you put the two together. Jesus, in both of these miracles, is demonstrating symbolically he's the bread of life. And then the first time he performs this miracle, he does so in Capernaum for the Jews. 
now he's performing this same miracle in the Decapolis for the Gentiles. Why? What, what does this communicate to us? It tells us Jesus is the bread of life for all people. For all people. Jesus is the bread of life for the Jews and the Gentiles. Not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Not just for the Gentiles, but for the Jews. Christ is the bread of life for everyone. In fact, this right here is the climax of this entire trip to the Gentile world. Because if you think about this, he leaves the Jewish territory after calling the religious elite a bunch of hypocrites, goes to the Gentile land where he encounters a woman and says she has great faith, and then Jesus heals a deaf man in such a way to, 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 make it, to engender his faith in him. He heals a multitude of people and casts out demons for the Gentiles like he's done for the Jews and then he performs this incredible miracle this act of creation not only compassionately meets their physical needs but demonstrates to these people he is God in the flesh and he's the bread of life for them too Jesus is the bread of life for everyone and this right here is so important because it's not just God is not just the God of the Jews. He is the God of all. Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews. He is the Savior of the world. And again, you might be like, duh, we understand that. But understand this. The thing that we need to come to terms with, Jesus being the bread of life for all people, was the plan from the beginning. You see, there's some... There's something in American theology nowadays... Modern American theology that says that the Gentiles being included here is God's plan B. It wasn't ever supposed to be that way. That Jesus went to the Gentiles only after the Jews rejected him. That that was the original plan. He was just there to save the, the Jews. There are many people who believe today that in the American church that the inclusion of the Gentiles is just simply an afterthought. It's like that Jesus went to the Jews and said, hey, you don't want this salvation? Fine, I'll go somewhere else and I'll give it to somebody else. As if every single Jew had rejected Christ and that only the Gentiles then accepted him. But the fact of the matter is, it is both Jews and Gentiles that accepted Christ. And it is both Jews and Gentiles who rejected him. All classes of people have accepted him, and all classes of people have rejected him. You see, Jesus didn't come just to save the Jews only. He came to save sinners all over the world, and that was part of the plan all along. Jesus ministers to the Jews, and he touches the lives of thousands of people, and they come to faith in him, and then he goes to the Gentiles and does the exact same thing. And remember, when he encountered the woman, what did he say to her? He says... It's not good for me to take the bread from the children and throw it to the dogs. But then she responds, because he's testing her faith, and she responds, but yes, but even the dogs get to eat the scraps from the master's table. And he says, you have great faith. Why does she have great faith? Because she was right to expect the blessing of God. She was right to expect it. Because God is not just the God of the Jews, he is the God of all. And so the Gentiles being included in the very family of God has not been an afterthought. It was part of the plan from the beginning. In fact, we can go back to the beginning, to Genesis, chapter 22. Abraham has just 
tried to sacrifice his son to God at God's request, and God stopped him. Remember that whole story there? And the angel of the Lord, it says, called to Abraham from heaven the second time, saying, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, or Yahweh. And by the way, when you see in the, in the Old Testament, when you see the Bible, you see the word Lord, capital L, and then you see small capital O-R-D. The reason why it's written that way is that word actually is the divine name of God, which you could substitute that word Lord for Yahweh. All right? So I, by myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, or the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your descendants like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will possess the gates of their enemies. And, notice this, verse 18, through your offspring, singular, through your offspring, all nations, all nations of the earth will be blessed because, they, because you have obeyed my voice. Now Paul, the apostle, in Galatians chapter 3, he comments on this very text and he interprets it for us. And he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. What God is telling Abraham from the very beginning is that from you will come one who will be born, who will bless not just the Jews, but all the nations. The promise of Abraham was to bless all the nations through Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of this promise. Because what is this blessing for the nations? What is the blessing? Is it national prosperity? Is it world peace? Is it military victory? Is it... Is it Financial plenty where all your markets are good and everybody is fed? What is this blessing that is for all the nations? The blessing is the eternal life found in Jesus Christ. That is the blessing. The blessing is, is Christ paying for our sins. That's the blessing. The blessing is for Christ living a perfect life so that he can give to us his righteousness for those of us who put our faith in Him, the blessing is Christ drinking down every last drop of the wrath of God on our behalf so we don't have to endure that. That is the blessing. The blessing is Christ Himself. That is the promise. Eternal life that will come to those and all the nations who put their faith in Him right, through Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ. Because the plan has always been about all the nations. Isaiah says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It has always been God's plan to bring salvation to not just the Jews, but to the ends of the earth. Micah 1.11 says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, incense will be offered in my name and pure, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. It has always been God's plan for the nations to worship Him. David even says the same thing. Psalm 86.9, he says, For all the nations that you have made, 
you have made shall come and worship before you, O God, and shall glorify your name. It has never been just about the Jews. The Gentiles have never been plan B. It has never been about having two different people with two different plans of salvation. It has always been about one Savior and one family of God. Jesus himself said it. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus is the bread of life, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. And it has always been the plan. And again, what, what does that mean for us? Practically, what does that mean for us? It means praise the Lord. And no matter who you are, and no matter where you have been, and no matter what you have done, and no matter what you have been through, you are all welcome to come to Christ. It's not about your national identity. It is not about your ethnicity. It is not about your gender. It's not about your family. It's not about your past. It's not about your previous religious experience. It's not about your church attendance. It's not about you even trying to make yourself right so that you can come to Christ. It's about coming to Him through repentance and faith, period. All are welcome to walk the narrow way. All are welcome to enter through the narrow gate. All are welcome to come to Christ. All are welcome at the foot of the cross. And brothers and sisters, when we stand at the foot of the cross, we all stand on level ground. Not one of us has anything to boast about over the other one. We are all in the same condition. Broken, wretched sinners who desperately need the grace and mercy of Christ. As Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life for all people. And any person who would come and eat of him through repentance and faith will become part of the family of God. There's one last thing I'd like to share with you. Notice it says in verse 8, is they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. The truth is, there is plenty right, for us to talk about here. There's more to talk about here than I can probably do in a whole sermon series. I mean, really, when you look at, if you take this text apart, there are so many things to talk about, right? But, but there's two things I'd really like to share with you, wrapping this up. When, we, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 in Capernaum, I want you to notice, when he feeds the 5,000 Jews in Capernaum, there were 12 small baskets full left over. That number 12 is not accidental. I mean, it could have been... Two and a half, right? There's 12. The reason why is 12 is the symbolic representation of the nation of Israel. It always has been. And this is a subtle truth that's being communicated by Christ. And what it's saying is that Christ is more than enough for the Jews. That he wasn't just enough. He's more than enough for the nation of Israel. But then notice... How many baskets are left over when he feeds the 4,000 at the Decapolis? And by the way, the number four always represents the earth. Did you know that? When you, especially when you look in like the book of Revelation, the number four represents the earth. We have what? Uh, four directions, right? 
four seasons, symbolic of the earth. Right? So he feeds these 4,000 into the capitalists. And, and number seven, what does that always represent? It's the number of completion. Seven is the number of fullness. This is a picture of the completion of God's plan throughout the world. And what I need to realize is these baskets in this situation okay, are not the same as the other baskets for the Jews. The ones for the, for the Jews were little bitty small baskets. Right? That's what the Greek implies. But the baskets that are used here are big hamper laundry sized baskets. I mean, these baskets are big enough that this is the type of basket they used to lower Paul out the window outside of the city gate so he could escape. That's how big they are. Seven of these big baskets full. What's this communicating? It's Jesus is more than enough for the Gentiles too. Right? But most importantly, what this is communicating is Jesus is sufficient for your greatest need. Jesus is sufficient for your greatest need. And brothers and sisters, this is the truth that we need to live in today. In light of the things that are happening around us, in light of the fact that there are homicidal maniacs that still roam our country, in light of the fact that there are going to have things happen in your life that are going to cause you to look to heaven and go, why? In light of the fact that there are going to be times where you're going to hear silence from God, you're going to wonder, is he even there? There are going to be times when people are going to challenge you about your faith, what you need to hold on to, and what you need to remember, and what you need to experience in your life is Christ is sufficient for you. In all things, but especially your greatest need. Because the world is telling us something different continually. The world is saying your greatest need is money. Sometimes I believe that. Your greatest need is education. You just need to know more. Your greatest need is, is to be heard because no one's listening to you. Your greatest need is to satisfy your sexual desires no matter how twisted they are. That's exactly what the world's telling you. You don't, have, you don't believe me? Then, then, then find out what they're teaching at school. The world believes that, that your greatest need is to overcome oppression in your life. Your greatest need is for the right political party to win the right election so then everything will be good that way. That your greatest need, even some Christians believe, that your greatest need is for you just to try harder. Others believe that your greatest need is relationships and, and love. Brothers and sisters, our greatest need is forgiveness. Our greatest need is the wrath of God abides over everyone's head who's at odds with Him. And you can't fix it on your own. Our greatest need is that we were dead, as Paul says, in our sins and trespasses. Our greatest need is we need Christ to rescue us. Our greatest need isn't for Jesus to make you better. Your greatest need is for Jesus to make you alive. Brothers and sisters, Christ is more than enough for your greatest need. His atoning death on the cross is more than enough to pay for all of your sins, and then some. His righteousness is more than enough to clothe you in so you can stand before God spotless. And His grace is more than enough for you. His grace is inexhaustible. In fact, in a moment, we're going to observe the Lord's table. And when we do, we'll receive the grape juice in a little cup like this. It's a little bitty dinky cup. I mean, so if you're thirsty, too bad, right? This is 
Not what that's for. But I want you to imagine with me. I know you don't have one to hold on to, but just look at this and imagine with me. Okay? Trying to, let's say, empty out a swimming pool with one of these little cups. It's possible? Probably. But stupid, right? Like, like, it's, like really, like, that's not even practical. Well, here's what I want you to hear, okay? And if you would just lean in here and just hear what I'm saying here and take it to heart. You will sooner empty out the contents of the entire ocean on planet Earth a thousand times over with one of these long before you will ever begin to put a dent in God's inexhaustible grace. You understand that. Whatever grace that you think that God has is just the beginning of what He has. His grace is limitless. Praise the Lord, because if there was a limit, I would have done exceeded it. What that means for you and me and for the rest of the world is He is more than enough. Jesus absolutely is compassionate and has a love for every one of you. And Jesus is God in the flesh, which means he's completely sovereign, which means ultimately that's why you can trust him, because you can believe his promises and understand it will happen. And Jesus is the bread of life, and there is no life in any other. And Jesus is the bread of life for all people, so that means all people are welcome to come to the foot of the cross. And Jesus, as the bread of life, is sufficient for your greatest need and so much more. And in light of this teaching, then, my plea my cry, my admonition to you is one of two things. If you are not in Christ, if you have not put your trust in Him, or if you said, hey, I prayed a prayer when I was five years old, but I really have not been following Him, I don't really believe Him, if you're not in Christ, hear my voice. Run to Him now. Come to Him now. Take a hold of Him. Do as Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from your sin and turn towards Him. Humble yourself and take hold of Him. And throw all of your hope and all of your trust that you might have been hoping in yourself or your money or your possessions or your abilities or whatever. Take all of that trust and you throw it on Jesus Christ and take hold of Him and turn to Him in faith and trusting in Him alone to save you. And He will not despise you. Come to Him. Secondly, if you are in Christ, which I believe most of you are, hear my words. Let go. Let go of the distractions that are holding you back. Let go of your insecurities that keep you from telling people about the gospel. Let go of the idols that get in the way, because we do have them that pop up. Let go of the excuses sell out for the mission of Christ that you were saved for. Albert Muller, who's the president of the Southern Seminary, he recently reminds us that at the end of the day, the biggest obstacle to evangelism is Christians who won't share the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we are surrounded by a world full of people who have the exact same greatest need that you do. 
Their lives might be different. It might, they might look different. They might have different complexities. But they have the exact same need that you do. And they're desperately groping around in the dark, blind, searching for anything they can get their hands on to fill that need. And you, brothers and sisters, have the message that they need to hear. You have the seeds of life that they need in their hearts. And it is your calling to go out and sow those seeds into their hearts. Dear Christian, let us not forsake this duty that we were all born, reborn into. Join me and let us go out into the world and storm the gates of hell together, being compassionate as Christ is compassionate and showing people where they can find the bread of life and live. We owe it to them. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.